This week, as I was preparing um, for my sermon, I read, as I do each week, Augustine's sermon. Um, there's a wonderful set of his sermons in six volumes on all of the Psalter um, that's been made available in recent years, and I rely on it each week. As I was reading Augustine's sermon this week on Psalm 62, I found his sermon introduction so delightful and also full, I think, of insight that I wanted to share it with you. This is how Augustine of Hippo began his sermon on the same text, Psalm 62, some 1600 years ago as he preached in Hippo on the northern coast of Africa, meditating on, think about this for a moment, the same exact portion of God's word that we will meditate on together today, though in a very different age and in a different tongue and in a place far from us. Augustine started his sermon this way to his congregation. He said, all the utterances of God are a delight to us. I love that. All the utterances of God are a delight to us. The sweetness, Augustine says, the sweetness that we find in his word is to us, meaning himself as the preacher, an inducement to speak. And to you, he says to his congregation, an incentive to listen. So that with the help of him who grants us, that is the Spirit, such exquisite enjoyment, our land, here he compares the congregation to a kind of field, that our land may yield its fruit. He says, optimistically, I think, he says, I can see that you do not find it tedious to listen. I love that. For the palate of your hearts, he says, and here he's not just being optimistic in some you know, abstract way, but he's trusting in the work of the Spirit and the lives of the people before him. He says, for the palate of your hearts is a discerning one. He trusts that the Spirit is at work, that their hearts are discerning for the Word of God. He says, which rejects nothing that is good for you, but seizes it eagerly and assimilates it to your profit. It's a beautiful picture of how to receive the Word of God and cling to it and Put it to practice in your life. Augustine concludes his introduction by saying, I congratulate you on your good taste. Friends, I congratulate you on your good taste. Not because you want to listen to me, but because you want to hear the word of God and find the sweetness that it holds. Listen now to God's word from Psalm 62, which is, printed on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along there. And before I read, I'll just say, interestingly, this is one of the few psalms in the Psalter that contain no petitions to God. The psalmist does not request anything of God in this psalm. It's interesting. There are, by my count, um, seven imperatives in this psalm, but each of these requests are addressed either to the psalmist's own soul or to his readers, to us. God actually is not addressed in this psalm at all until the last verse. It's fascinating. As such, Psalm 62 is what we might call a wisdom psalm. It lays out for us wisdom, true wisdom, what it is to believe in God, who God is, who we are in relationship to him, and what we are called to believe to be true about the world and about us and about God himself. Listen now to Psalm 62. 
to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My righty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him. At all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, Set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts be found pleasing in your sight this morning, by your Spirit, and in and through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. We'll talk about the rest of the psalm in a little bit, but I want to take some time here at the beginning of our time together this morning to meditate on this one verse, which seems to me to carry with it the thesis, the idea, the argument of the psalm as a whole, the whole psalm. Listen to these words again. Let them Sit in your mind for a moment, ponder them in your heart, this declarative statement that the psalmist makes when he says, For God alone, for God alone, my soul waits. And how does he wait? In silence. From him, from God, comes my salvation. That is why he waits. Yesterday, in God's providence, I was in a circumstance where I found myself driving in my car for about three hours um, alone by myself. Um, there wasn't much traffic. It wasn't particularly stressful driving. And uh, apart from a, one brief phone call, I just 
spent the entire three hours in silence as I drove. No music, um, no audio lectures, which is what I usually listen to in the car, just silence. And there in the silence for three hours, just the hum of the car and the scenery passing by, I, I just meditated on this one verse really pretty continuously. At times I'd get distracted in other areas, but mostly I just meditate on this verse. It was short enough I could have it in my mind and hold it there and just roll it around and think about it. Ponder each of the words and how they hang together. Think about the importance of the word alone in this verse. How different this verse would be if it didn't include the word alone after God. Thinking about how important that phrase in silence is, how much richer that makes the waiting that David calls us to in this verse. Listen to it again. David says, for God alone, for God alone, no one else, only for God. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him, that is from God, comes my salvation. That statement, which is certainly short enough for you to memorize and carry around in your mind and heart this week for your own pondering and meditation, that statement seems to me to be a profound statement of wisdom, but also a real confession of faith, dependence, and submission to God. It is for God alone that David waits. He's waiting for no one but God. Only God is worthy to be waited for, David is saying, in this posture of absolute dependence. And why does David wait for God? It is because only God can bring the salvation, the help, the deliverance that he needs. Only God can fix what is broken in his life. Only God can rescue him. Only God can bring the healing that his soul requires as it's been savaged and ravaged by sin and suffering and death. But how does David wait? He waits in silence. He is silent before the face of God and he waits for him alone, for his salvation. Waiting in silence, as David talks about here, is it seems to me um, the ultimate kind of act of submission and obedience and dependence on God. Right? Silence is what happens when our words run out, right? when our strength is spent and we can't go anymore. Silence before God means that we have given up the illusion of trying to control God or manipulate Him or leverage Him or force Him to do whatever it is we think He should do to fix our lives or our world. We're silent because there's nothing left to say. There's no option other than to commit ourselves fully into His hands. We're silent because what God does is no longer something we're trying to influence. When we are silent before God, we acknowledge that our hope is only in His action. He must take the initiative. Our hope is not in ourselves. And we have to trust that He will act in the time and in the manner 
that he chooses. The book of Job is full of a great deal of wisdom. It's a profound book that Job speaks aloud. Job is a kind of preacher all throughout that book as he wrestles with God and with his own soul in light of the desperate suffering that he experiences. There are chapters and chapters of Job's speeches, his sermons almost, so to speak, in Job. And I commend those passages to you as real wisdom. But in many ways, the wisest thing that Job says comes at the end of that book in chapter 40, where he finally says this, I lay my hand upon my mouth, Job says. Finally, he comes to the end of his words. And there in Job's silence, when he says, I lay my hand upon my mouth, that God begins to speak. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, says David. From him comes my salvation. David, you see, is not just describing his own personal experience here. He's commending something for us. He's telling us something crucial, something fundamental about the life of faith. Beloved, if you are going to live a Christian life, you will learn the truth of these words, of this wisdom that David has for you. At some point, you will learn what it means to live into the truth of what David says here. Because you will have to learn what it means for your soul to wait on God and God alone, and to do it in silence. What it means to enter into that deep posture of faith and submission and obedience, which is all connected to relinquishment, giving yourself over into the hands of God, because you finally fully realize that only He can bring the salvation the deliverance that you need. But this is always how it has been for the people of God. This is always the kind of faith, the kind of trust, the kind of obedience and submission that God has called his people into. The Lord is not calling you to do something he hasn't always done with his people. Think of Noah, adrift on a boat, the whole world an ocean, I mean, he is out of control in that moment, right? There is no possible solution that he can uh, fix. He has a limited amount of food he has to trust. Waiting in silence for months for the rain to actually end, for the waters to actually recede, for dry land to appear again. Think of Abraham on that three-day journey that God sent him on to Mount Moriah, Isaac walking beside him. And all that time, Abraham knew, and Isaac didn't, that the reason they were going on this journey was because God had commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son on that mountain. And Abraham waited in silence, heavy silence, to see what the Lord would do. Think of Moses tending sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years he tended sheep 
in the wilderness after he had escaped from the house of Pharaoh. Forty years of silently waiting to see how God would, in fact, deliver his people from slavery before a bush began to burn in the wilderness. Think of Ruth, of that one night described in Ruth chapter 3 as she slips into the darkened threshing floor and lies down at the feet of a man she's only met several times, Boaz, silently waiting there in the darkness all night for him to wake up and hoping, trusting that in that moment of vulnerability, that God would protect her, that God would actually use Boaz for her protection. Think of Mary, who, after she opened her mouth and spoke forth the Magnificat immediately after her conception of Jesus in her womb, then had to wait silently for nine months in the midst of a lot of confusion, a lot of questions, trusting that even though she had never known a man, she knew that she had never known a man in that way. But still, what the angel had promised would be true, that she would bear in her own body the son of the living God. Think of Simeon and Anna. Their stories are in Luke chapter 2. At the temple for decades and decades, waiting, silently waiting for the consolation of Israel. But of course, all these acts of faith and submission and obedience, they point above all things to the one who is the paragon for us, the fulfillment of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. For friends, there is no silence in the scriptures. There is no powerlessness um, in the scriptures that matches the silence and the powerlessness of the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth as he waited silently in the tomb for three days and fulfilled completely these words that David gives us so that we, united to him, might walk in them too. Think of these words and how Jesus fulfilled them in the grave. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. There's something almost frightening about silence in our culture today. If you go into a doctor's office or any other place where people are waiting uh, for something, you'll discover how quickly, uh, quickly rather, how uncomfortable most human beings are these days with quiet, with silence, as evidenced above all things by how quickly they pull out their phones, right? And I get it, right? Silence and inaction are, are disorienting. Philosophers have rightly pondered the terror that can come when silence falls and humans are left alone with nothing to distract them from either their own selves or from God. For the past three or four years, um, when we've done our men's retreats or women's retreats as a church, one of the central features of those uh, times away have been a time in the morning when everyone is required to go off on their own by themselves and find a nice spot to sit in and be there without a phone or a book or headphones or any distraction for an hour, just in silence. 
doing nothing but pondering their own selves and the presence of God. As you might imagine, the feedback that I get from that exercise from those who do it is mixed. Some people love it. Some people find it excruciating or worse. Some people find they just can't do it, right? 20 minutes in and they're cheating somehow, right? Incidentally, I recommend this. I recommend actual literal silence as a way to embody the kind of faith and submission to God that this psalm is describing. If an hour is too impractical or too terrifying, um, then maybe five minutes or ten. I promise you, friends, if you begin to do this, if you begin to spend even five minutes a day silently alone with God, with no distractions, just pondering your own self and what God is up to in your life, you will likely discover that the Spirit will begin to work in ways that you had not seen or expected. But of course, this psalm is not only about waiting on God in actual literal silence, it's also about kind of metaphorical silence. Waiting on God in a, in a posture of, of dependence, of listening, of hope and faith and submission and obedience. One where you're putting yourself fully into his hand because you have stopped trying to persuade him to do whatever it is you want. Fascinatingly, this reality is actually worked out into the structure of the psalm itself. For God alone my soul waits in silence, David says at the beginning of the psalm. And if you read the rest of it carefully, you'll realize that this is actually one of the very few psalms in the Psalter that does not contain a single petition to God. In fact, God is not addressed at all in this psalm directly until the very last two verses, the very end. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with asking God for things. Not at all. The scriptures are full of that kind of prayer. The psalms are full of petitionary prayer. But this psalm is given to us, friends, as a gift. It's designed to help us expand our vision of what prayer is to realize that prayer is actually more than just offering petitions or even offering thanksgivings to God. Prayer is also waiting in silence before the face of the living God for God to act. And indeed, there is a kind of communion with God, I think, that is possible only when we stop asking him for things and simply dwell before his face and wait in silence. For him to speak, for him to act, for him to save. Indeed, this whole psalm is a sustained meditation on the uselessness, the powerlessness of human action. And it, and it flowers in the end in a profound affirmation of God's power and love. Let me show you how that argument works. In verses 1 to 2, David gives us the theme of the psalm, right? It's his central argument. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone, David says, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Then in verses 3 and 4, David addresses the wicked. He points out the feudal cycle of violence and and bids for power. He points out the, the foolishness of their ceaseless action, which accomplishes nothing. He says, how long 
will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They, meaning the wicked, only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood, not in truth. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. After considering the wicked, David returns to his central theme of verses 1 to 2 of waiting on God in silence. In fact, he he repeats almost verbatim verses 1 and 2, but with one significant change. Now, instead of stating these things abstractly, he begins to address his own soul. You see that shift there in verse 5? You see, in this psalm, David, one of the things he's doing is addressing himself, his own spirit, his own soul, his own heart which is another way in which this psalm should expand our vision of prayer. Right? Prayer is not only the place where we wrestle with God, though it is that. It is also where we wrestle with our own hearts and our own souls, and we bring the promises of God to bear on them. In verses 5 to 8, David says, For God alone, O my soul, he's speaking to himself, to his own soul, For God alone, O my soul, Wait in silence. He's giving himself an imperative. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. He's claiming that promise. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. He's wrestling with himself, reminding himself where his hope comes. And then he addresses us. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Then in verses 9 to 10, David returns to his earlier theme of the futility of human action, of the futility of human control and manipulation that he began to speak of in verses 3 and 4. He develops it even further here. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. They're like vapor. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, humanity goes up. They are together, David says, lighter than a breath, like vapor on the wind. Put no trust in extortion, he says. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. That is not where your salvation will come. I would argue that this whole psalm is itself an expression of the statement that David makes in verse 1. David is not literally silent in this psalm, of course, but in these first 10 verses, he has not once addressed God directly. He has not asked God for anything. Instead, he's wrestled with his own heart and soul and with the weakness and futility of humankind, himself included. But all of this silence is going somewhere. That's important to see in this psalm. It's leading to a profound conclusion. In verses 11 and 12, David sums up the fruit of his silent waiting before God. And he says this, once God has spoken. In his silence, God begins to speak. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, he begins now to speak to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. 
Beloved, do you see what David has done here? He is actually revealing to us what the Spirit will actually teach us over time as we walk in the path of waiting silently for God and trusting that salvation indeed comes from Him. This is what we will learn in a new way, in our silence, in our waiting before God. First, as David says, that power belongs to God. That power doesn't belong to us. Indeed, it doesn't belong to any man or any of the wealth or riches of the world. All power and sovereignty belongs to God alone. You can say that with your lips and articulate it, but you learn it in a different way if you wait silently before the face of God for him to act. We learn this in our silent waiting, in our submission and our faith. We learn the truth of the power of God, not just abstractly, but in our hearts. But that's not the only thing we learn in this place of silence. We learn also that to God belongs steadfast love. We learn of God's steadfast love in our place of silent waiting because it is in that place that God's help and God's deliverance and God's faithfulness meets us. It is in our silence and our patience and our dependence that God actually draws near and reveals to us his steadfast love, his covenant love, his love that always manifests itself one way or another in our redemption. Beloved, I know that some of you are in a place of waiting silently before God. You may not like it, you may not have chosen it, but that is the corner in which God has boxed you into. And that may feel like weakness or failure or that somehow because things are quiet that God has stopped his work. But what this psalm, friends, shows you is that place of waiting silently for God is actually a holy place. It's a sacred place. Because the Spirit is there in that place. And it's in that place that you will learn. The Scripture promises you this. You will learn what you could not otherwise know. The power and the steadfast love of the living God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for its place in the Psalter and in the Scriptures. And for the wisdom that it has for us, Father, this day I pray that you would help us to meditate deeply on these words, to consider what it means to wait on you alone in silence. Because we know that it is only from you that our salvation comes. I pray that you would grant us this wisdom and this faith that we might learn of your power and of your steadfast love. In Christ's name, amen.